The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's Wednesday, February the 7th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Next weekend, Gerry Adams officially steps down after more than three decades as leader of Sinn Féin, marking the end of the most controversial political career of the modern era. Vincent Brown has made a two-part documentary which is being broadcast this week on TV3, and he joined us in studio along with Sarah Barden from our political staff and our legal affairs correspondent, Colm Keena, who has written an unauthorised biography of Adams. Vincent Brown, in your article for the Irish Times uh, at the weekend, you're arguing that Gerry Adams perhaps doesn't get due or fair recognition for his role. I think you you argue his uh, absolutely crucial and central role in the peace process, uh, either in the South or from the unionist community in the North. Why do you think that is? I suppose because of horror at uh, the atrocities perpetrated by the IRA over so many decades would be the main thing. Um, but also, uh, and the part of the unionist community, also for another factor, which I think is interesting in the, in the context of the present difficulties in Northern Ireland, and it is a, the failure of the unionist community in the North to realise that the Good Friday Agreement was a triumph for unionism. And I say that because the difference between nationalists and unionists are the... the uh, the um, ideological difference between nationalism and unionism was that unionists insisted that only the people of Northern Ireland had the right to determine the constitutional future of Northern Ireland. Nationalists insisted that, and uh, no, it was the people of Ireland that had the right to uh, determine that. And the Good Friday Agreement involved all of nationalist and Republican Ireland accepting that the, the unionist proposition that only the people of Northern Ireland would determine the future of Northern Ireland. And it's extraordinary that the uh, unionist community didn't appreciate that. And the reason I think they didn't was because Adams was able to spin a defeat as a triumph to his own side. And so effective was it that the other side believed it as well. So you actually had this, people have mentioned this kind of paradox where um, nationalists don't realise they've lost and unionists don't realise they've won. Yes. Now... There are other factors at play, of course, uh, namely the defeat uh, or the, the destruction of the orange state. And that was a crucial part of the outcome of the Good Friday Agreement and of what had gone on over 20 or 30 years before that. And 
that was a huge issue. And that is the issue now that's at stake in the current difficulties at Stormont, that um, the remnants of the Iron State are still around and still ingrained in the DUP mindset and still causing problems. I was just looking at a news story in uh, the Irish Times this morning. Uh, it was about Alex Maskey uh, on Twitter responding to a, a comment about Northern Ireland. And he, he described Northern Ireland as a squalid little statelet which caused, you know, kerfuffles among the DUP. And it was a typical kind of a, you know, miniature in microcosm picture of the, the problems which are, the recurring problems which are still there. But one of the things that occurred to me about that was that Alex Maskey was responding to um, to a, a tweet by the SDLP leader Colm Eastwood, and Colm Eastwood had been uh, was was talking about uh, a centi- the centenary of the women's vote, and he was talking about political reform in Northern Ireland, and Alex Maskey was arguing, as is the Sinn Fein position, that political reform uh, that that the civil rights movement would not have been sufficient to deliver the political reform that was necessary in, in, in Northern Ireland. And doesn't this go back to the crux of what Seamus Mallon was saying for years that uh, that you describe in your article in the Irish Times on Saturday, you know, people being burned alive in Le Mans, uh, families being slaughtered at Enniskillen. And this was all to address the problems of gerrymandering in local politics and lack of fair access to council housing. Could that not have been addressed by other means? Well, uh, I, th- I think that the one of the intriguing things about Northern Ireland for me is um, what was it that tipped people over from one day being effectively pacifists or uninvolved and and then within a very short period of time being willing to kill people and that's a crucial transition I think and I think that the reason for that, I could be quite wrong about this, but I think the reason for that was a build-up of anger and frustration and resentment uh, arising from the humiliation that the uh, Iron State inflicted on nationalists. Um, but in, in addition to that, and Seamus Mallon makes this point too, a, a, allied to that humiliation was a sense of abandonment by the British, uh, on the part of the British state, the Westminster, but also and crucially by the southern state. Southern state was not remotely interested over all the years from 22 up to 68, in fact, beyond 68, 69, not remotely interested in the issues of discrimination, gerrymandering, etc. in Northern Ireland, and were oblivious to the, uh, the, the mounting anger of the nationalist community. I take that, but Colm, I'll bring you into it, uh, you yeah. know, if I, if I may, because, and, and you know, we'll, we'll move on and look at what's been a very, you know, a half a century at the centre mm-hmm. of Irish politics in one way or another in yeah. terms of Gerry Adams. But at this kind of, this core point and how Gerry Adams entered political activism in the late 60s and the early 70s, mm-hmm. um, and the argument which Vincent makes, which is that his, his role in bringing peace to Northern Ireland, which indubitably he had is true, but he's the person who brought war to Northern Ireland in the first place. And how do you balance those two things against each okay, other? I, I or actually, one of the people who I think brought that, war that to Northern Ireland? I think that what Vince was saying there is really interesting because if we could start with a, a tiny anecdote, but in 1990, 91, I had the good fortune to be living in Paris, but I had a Croatian uh, journalist friend who was appalled by what was happening in the Balkans. And then one of the people from his paper died in an accident and he went home and he went home for a few weeks. And then when he came back, he was full of it. He was full of the fury of he was to- he really put it on the national uh, jersey, you know, and he totally changed in a few weeks hmm. um, his perspective on it. But when he'd been detached for a minute, he was appalled by the the hatred and violence that he was seeing in his in his colleagues. But and it seems to me that when you look at what happened 
in the 60s, you know, Jerry Adams will talk about um, being influenced by what was happening with civil rights in the United States, Martin Luther King, all that sort of thing was in the air, the folk music and so on. And then you had all these frustrations of the the, the, the appalling way the, the nationalist community was treated in Northern Ireland. But the, the key factor, to my mind, is there was, was an ideology there that he was raised with and that so many people in his community had, uh, which you could tip into, which gave you an explanation for, for what was happening and gave you a, a way to go about um, resolving um, the problem that you were confronted with. And that tradition and that explanation uh, puts physical force or violence or killing or destruction to the fore. And in fact, uh, glorifies it and has a suspicion of politics and says that people who argue, people who argue that, hang on, maybe we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't uh, kill people, um, are, are by, by saying that, are uh, objects of le- legitimate suspicion. You know they're going to compromise, and they're going to they're going to betray the community, and um, so I think that explains what happened, uh, you know, with, with with Jerry Adams and with a lot of Northern Ireland because it, it, the violence was pretty awful pretty quickly, and and the, the literature from the time shows that people who were in leadership in the Republican movement were consciously trying to blood the community because they believed that the, the effective way to resolve the issue was to unify the island. They believed the British wouldn't leave unless they were driven out violently. So they had to, they had to do that. So but is that always the theory of what some people call asymmetrical warfare? Is no, that you have to up no, the no, ante the, in the, order to provoke reprisals from the, you know, from the governing power yeah. and therefore to gain support among your own community? Yeah, but I'm just saying there was a tradition there, mm. a tradition, an already existing tradition that people could buy into. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the case that, that the human rights struggle would, or the civil rights struggle would, would uh, create a, a, a guerrilla army, you know, so quickly. But it had a tradition and an already existing guerrilla army. Which is a tradition which Jerry Adams came from, isn't it himself? It is, but I think he had uh, disassociated himself from that tradition, at least partially, uh, because uh, when uh, the... When the conflict started, Jerry Adams was in the Republican movement, which was then still united, and he was very much part of what, what became his ethos was very much part of what became the official Republican movement. Um, and uh, when the split came in late December of uh, of sixty nine, and in the case of Sinn Fein in January of seventy, he dithered for quite a while. He didn't go with the provost for several months and I suspect it was because he was uneasy with the politics of the provost. Which part of their politics do you think, do you suspect he was uneasy with? The physical force stuff. The physical force stuff, right. Uh, And there was an incident uh, which I think is is significant. Um, He he was very much a Bally Murphy man and there were riots in Bally Murphy in uh, May of, uh, in April of 1970 which caused trouble down here too. It led to um, movement of arms to Dundalk um, by the army, but um, uh, but uh, Adams uh, Adams was very much the, the British army forced a, an orange march through part of Barry Murphy, uh, and which had never happened before. The orange march had never uh, had never been there before, and there was rioting went on for several days, and Billy McKee, who was the OC of uh, the provost in Belfast at the time, 
um, sent uh, three gunmen up to sort out the British Army. And Adams asked them not to engage, not to engage in a gunfire. And he said, we're able to handle it. And they were, they were, the, the, the riot was very well stewarded and organised. And he was against the use of gunfire at that time, which I think is an interesting insight into what he was about. Now, later on, he, of course, he became OC in Belfast. And during that time, terrible atrocities were perpetrated. Gene McConville thing, the bombing of London started. And there were other awful things happened. But his instincts, the idea that he was the, the old style Republican bloodlust was instilled in him, I think is not true. So you trace, or you're suggesting that you can trace a line in Adams's political thinking right from the early days through the 1980s and his assumption of the Sinn Féin leadership and the move to a democratic strategy, right from the very start. None of us are that, are, are that consistent or that coherent. And um, I, I, I spoke to Adams about, after reading Ed Maloney's book, uh, Inside History of the, IRA, of the IRA, or The Secret History of the IRA. And Ed Maloney's book almost makes a hero out of Adams, or a superman out of Adams, in that he, he was so far-seeing, he saw the whole thing panning out in the way it did right from the beginning. And of course, nobody is, is capable of doing that. And... In the case of Adams, his I, my perception is that his mind changed as things went on, that, and he had different perceptions, different ideas, different uh, could see how things were going in a different way, and that's true of us all anyway. Um, hmm. I, another future I, I think is worth uh, here in the Irish Times worth reflecting on, and it is the role of the media that. Had the media bothered itself with highlighting what was going on in Northern Ireland, say, just even during the 60s, of how the Con McCluskey, the GP in Dungannon, starting up a civil rights, I forgot what it was called at the time, but starting up a civil rights movement of some kind of that, had the media latched into that and then got involved in, in reporting what was going on in Northern Ireland, things might have been a bit different, but the media just played dead. Instead, the Irish Times sent a reporter, sent a a, um, an, a senior person up to Storm, I think it was Fergus Pyle, later editor, uh, to report on Stormont, what was going on in Stormont, missing the point completely about what was going on on the ground. Of course, that happens yeah. in journalism all the time. Indeed, the Irish Times had fought again there, Sarah, but there's... The Irish I mean, Times is to blame. <laughs> <laughs> there, indeed, always, always. I, I want to ask you, because you, you interviewed, you know, Jerry Adams relatively recently, and you're looking at him as a, as a contemporary political figure as he departs the state, the public stage anyway, um, over, over, the, over the next week or so. One of the things I always wonder is that he seems to be a figure who, much more than, say, the late Martin McGuinness, arouses these strong feelings of revulsion or suspicion or negativity why would you think that is? Well, I think it's safe to say that Gerry Adams is probably one of the most, if not the most, polarising figure in Irish politics. And I think we see a, a fraction of that uh, in the debate between Colm and Vincent here this evening. To some, he is a uh, deal maker, a peacemaker, a hero, a realist, practical. To others, he's a man who used the most violent means to uh, meet his own personal ambitions um, to somebody who glorifies the worst atrocities of the IRA. He really, I suppose, even up until this very present day, when we look at the legacy of Gerry Adams, 
probably a bit more closely than we will um, than we ever have done before. He's someone who divides opinion um, inside Leinster House and outside Leinster House. You know, I had a conversation recently with my mother. I'm I'm, I'm young enough not to have been around in the days of the uh, of the trouble, or at least the troubles are at least the worst of worst of it. Um, and she talked about how. You know, Jerry Adams was censored by uh, RTE and other media broadcasts, and to me, he's he is one of the most recognisable faces in Irish politics, and probably a bit of a celebrity to to my generation, who perhaps are a little bit ignorant of uh, Jerry Adams' past or at least his involvement um, in Northern Ireland. So as he steps off the stage. I think there is a debate that I don't think will ever really be concluded um, about Gerry Adams and the legacy in which he will leave when he departs the political stage or at least uh, take, goes to the to the side of it this weekend. I did interview him uh, just before Christmas um, and I was struck by still how, I suppose, defensive he is when questioned about his past. If a man uh, or a defensive politician... Defensive or proud? I was just about to say, if a, if a, if a, if a man is uh, or a politician is proud of their past, I don't think Adams would react sometimes with the the aggression that he does when questioned about uh, his role um, in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, I, I think again, I'm not a historian, but I, I questioned him a lot about his time in Northern Ireland and his, you know how he is at the position that he is now an uncontested uh, leader of a third, the third largest opposition party in the Republic um, and the second largest party in the North. You know, and I just wanted to kind of get a flavour for me, more for me as well as to what took him there and the decisions that he took on the route. And I just found the aggression from Adams was, was a bit striking to me for somebody who should be proud of their or you know who believes that they should be proud of their um of their legacy or of their past you know and for me I just thought that that kind of um behavior didn't strike me as somebody who was all that comfortable with some of the things that he had done in the past. Yeah Colm I mean you've written about this this kind of dichotomy that you get in Sinn Féin that you see the difference between the way let's say that representatives of the party participate in political debates domestic political debates uh, in in the year 20, uh, 2018 and then if you go to the um, to the Ardesh or into the Sinn Féin shop on Parnell Street yeah. there is still this you know uh, desire to you know commemorate glorify treat with reverence the you know the martyrs of the cause and that is and one of the reasons we we suppose that Jerry Adams is now moving on, along with the fact of his advancing years, is to kind of is to really make that break finally with with its history. But yeah. has that been made, or or is it unavoidable that it has to kind of have this sort of two track approach to? Well, to I its think past? this goes to the heart of the heart of everything in a way, including people's reaction to his role uh, in the peace in the peace process and the idea that you might. Um, be, be grateful for it or whatever, or, you know, or put it in the weighing scales, um, in that um, he he's built up a pretty big role in building up a, a very a large political movement on the island now, um, which still glorifies, uh, glorifies and refuses to apologise for what happened uh, during the, the violent years when people rejected it. Like everybody in the island, bar a few people, rejected it. And we were all, yeah, I remember, like when Jack Lynch's football team came along, it was the first time he could wave, from people of my generation, you'd wave the Irish flag without feeling deeply uncomfortable and perhaps ashamed, you know. 
So it was always um, ambiguity, though, as well. Yeah, well, I, 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 from my per- personal point of view, is right. I, I, and I remember that distinctly as a as a development. And but the point I wanted to make was to go back to the, the original point I made, which is my own view. But um, that when the, the the awfulness, the injustices of Northern Ireland and so on, you know, got heated by the late nineteen sixties for all sorts of reasons, including advancing education and so on. Um, um, led to violence in part because there was a tradition there. And what I think is really dangerous about Sinn Féin um, is that the, the, we now have a mainstream party, who, who a very powerful per- political force in the land, telling young people that what was done between the, you know, the late 60s and the, 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 the mid to late 90s was done by admirable people for the best of motives and their heroes and, and there's no need to apologise for it and they seek to justify it in the context of a Northern Ireland where there's still massive problems and, um, you know, terrible sectarianism and so on. I just think it's really, really dangerous. And one of the, you know, wilder speculations I I, I sometimes entertain is uh, what's in Gerry Adams' mind when he said about uh, standing down the IRA, let's say, um, and then building up Sinn Féin. Well, one of the reasons you could argue for building up Sinn Féin is to stop a split, to keep the, the, the hardliners happy and to tell them that eventually we'll, we'll get to the objective by way of uh, a democratic uh, policies, usually very opportunistic uh, democratic. I think they're politically, they're really bad. Uh, and so th- th- I think that has terrible policy implications for the people of the island. So I think they're, they're, they're not serving the people of Ireland very well, but they have an, a, a, a better objective, you know, an overall objective. We'll achieve power and then we'll achieve unification. So it justifies it. But so, but maybe he's thinking in his own mind, but that won't work. It'll eventually denature and, and hit up against these obstacles that are obvious obstacles. But in the meantime, all of the guys of my generation We'll have all moved on. We'll all be in the grave or in the nursing home or somewhere. Well, and we'll have gotten yeah. the thing over the line. Oh, the crematorium you know, in my case. That's a, wi- that's um, a wilder speculation than my, my, my I, I just replied yeah. to something. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes, it's, it's a pity that uh, our political culture doesn't, uh, doesn't re- express our, our, an abhorrence with violence of any kind. But this has been going on since the start of the state. Our state was born in violence and... The early part of the state was a period of, of appalling violence, appalling atrocities. The War of Independence wasn't a clean war. There were terrible atrocities perpetrated. There were informers murdered all over, or alleged informers murdered all over the place. That, that's the way with war. And it's good reason why nobody should engage in war of any kind. Um, but we got over that. And um, it's hardly surprising that the people involved in the conflict in Northern Ireland wouldn't have the same... Um, uh, and by the way, nobody apologised. Nobody in, on either side of the civil war apologised for what went on until many, many years later. Um, and it's hardly surprising that there's a similar obduracy in, in, uh, on both sides of Northern Ireland now, and, and particularly on the Sinn Féin or Republican side. But can I make a point about politics? I, I take a completely different view of, of that to you. I, I'm deeply disappointed with um, Sinn Féin's um, uh, political ev- evolution. Um, they, uh, Jerry Adams was one of the people who inspired a radical break with the conservatism of the first era Noah policy document of the early 70s devised by Rory O'Brien and Dave O'Connell. And he came out with a revolutionary 
socialist agenda in uh, a new version of Erinu in 1979, promising changing the structures of Irish society very radically and make it much more equal and democratic society. That's all gone. Uh, Sinn Féin now has bit by bit by bit slid into, slid in or is sliding into the establishment politics of the South, which means that anybody who votes for Sinn Féin in the next election and, and expecting change will get will be gravely disappointed. It will be the same old stuff. The same as you may as well vote for Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael or the Labour Party because you get the same as Sinn Féin. So do you think he ever believed in the revolutionary socialism which he espoused in the late seventies? I, I do, but but so did a lot of people who were stickies, who were, who were left-wing in the Irish Times. And look what they turned out to be. Mem- um, members of the Progressive Democrats later on. Um, that's the way it goes. With, uh, with, with, I think that happens to everybody except you, Vincent, goes. isn't it? You, you travelled in the other with direction. You went from Fine Gael to the other <laughs> and direction. The, <laughs> and look out there in the newsroom and there's full of them. <laughs> well, they're all retired now, Vincent. <laughs> not, not enough of them are retired. <laughs> but I just wonder, was that, you know, were, were some of those trappings of, you know, being in favour of nationalising everything and controlling the means of credit and all that kind of stuff. It's all very easy to say when you're, you know, you're meeting in, you know, with your, your party members that you're Aaron Gandhi's and your berries on it's another matter when you're actually running for election ah there yeah. you go you see you were them <laughs> I always um, was uh, <laughs> isn't it a pity we didn't have control of financial institutions we wouldn't have gone in we probably wouldn't have gone into the crisis we did in the last one and by the way Sinn Féin or, or the lefties were the only parties in favour of that I was a member of Fine Gael in the 60s and Fine Gael was in favour of that Declan Costa's just decided talked of controlling financial institutions, controlling the banks, not quite nationalising them, though there was a hint of nationalisation. So had we gone a more radical road, look at the kind of awful society we, we lived in now. We have masses of people living in misery. Loads of people who don't have houses, loads of people, you know, children uh, living in poverty. And it's a sort of ash of what the hell, what do you expect? And that's the way it is. And that's the way it is. But if, if, you, if, 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 if one were to accept that, that, that point for a moment, isn't then what Jerry Adams has presided over the worst kind of scam or fraud on the people who tend to vote for Sinn Féin, who tend to be people who suffer most at the hands of the system, which you're describing there, and they're basically being defrauded by a party that claims to be representing their interest in the way that you but suggest you they like it, but fraud. they're not doing it. You talk about fraud. I would argue that actually, fraud is far, far too strong a word, but the idea of Irish freedom was an illusion. That yes, we got rid of the personages in power or in, in office in uh, this society by gaining independence. But we put in a load of Clonco's fellows um, to take over from them, and they were no different. They brought the same ideology, the same priorities to bear as the old uh, British aristocracy or the, the old British establishment did. And nothing is fundamentally changed. In many ways, we'd have been better off to have stayed, stayed within the UK because you, the, the welfare state was getting up and running at that, uh, at that time. I'm just making the point that it isn't only Sinn Féin has perpetrated, as you call a fraud. That's the nature of opportunist politics. And that characterised the politics of this state since the beginning. Colin. Yeah, no, I just want to make one point, if I could, about the, 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 some, the political agenda of Sinn Féin over the decades. Um, 
it's kind of interesting because obviously it's a it's kind of socialist. But I think if you went to the Ordeshna back in the back in the day in the eighties, like you didn't feel like you were in a hall full of socialists, to be honest. Um, but um, the, were you ever in a hall that you felt it was? Pardon? So, were you ever in a socialist? Uh, well, I'm just hall? saying that you'd be more inclined to think that you were in a hall full of you know uh, very conservative Catholics, actually. You know, that was the feel it had, you know. Um, but, um, but this is uh, in the Rory O'Brody days. When, well, even later than that, right, you know, okay. you know, when, when uh, in the late 80s, you would have, I, I used to feel. I mean, there was a smattering of socialists. There was the urban, you know, Armalite in one ha- hand and then we'll get the socialist Nirvana and so on. But there's a load of other guys there who are, you know, pretty hardline Catholics, it seemed to me. But, um, but I just wanted to make a point that one of the ironies, I think, that's drawn... Uh, really sharp focus into Jerry Adams' career is uh, the whole Brexit thing. So uh, it seems to me that Sinn Féin spent most of their time uh, against the EU because they're a nationalist party. And um, uh, But now, because of Brexit, you can see the extent to which the customs union has brought the island of Ireland together. It's made enormous strides. Much, I would say, it's been vastly more successful in that regard than Sinn Féin. In fact, Sinn Féin has been the opposite. It's created enormous division on the island over over its uh, existence. And Jerry Adams, I would say, has contri- contributed to enormous division on the island over over. But the EU, which he opposed, is a Eurosceptic party, uh, has done amazing things for bringing the island together. And funnily enough, also, of course, gave us the peace process. Indeed. Because the intellectual underpinnings of the peace process come from the EU. Sarah, I want, I want to ask you about, about Vincent's point, because it strikes me looking at modern Sinn Féin and its parliamentary party that talking to people like, I don't know, Louise O'Reilly, say, or Ono Brin, they seem to represent a fairly fairly coherent ideological, you know, left of left of centre position in the in the Irish span. Vincent might disagree and I'll give him the chance to do so in a minute if he wants. But that they, they do form part of a party which seems to be a larger coalition that certain rural deputies don't necessarily seem to kind of be, be signed up to that in the same way. As he departs the stage, you know, we know there have been all these problems, interpersonal problems with councillors and they've been going on right up to this week. But what about ideological splits or different visions of what Sinn Féin is as a party and should be in the future? Are they going to emerge? I think so. I think if you look, and obviously I don't want to keep bringing it back to the issue of abortion, but if you do look at that particular issue, you have people like Louise O'Reilly and Mary Lou MacDonald and Ono Bryn who would argue very much for the party to support um, the Oireachtas Committee recommendations to allow for abortions up to 12 weeks and repeal the eighth, to repeal the Eighth Amendment, that wouldn't necessarily be in line with the Sinn Féin grassroots. In fact, what they passed at their Ardesh in November was difficult enough for them to pass, which was abortions in certain circumstances. And now they have a battle on their hands to get the party uh, behind them um, when they alter their position again in advance of the referendum. So though that's just one particular issue, but there is an ideological split between the party. But I think what you will see over the next number of years is yes okay Jerry Adams leaves the stage and with him he takes a a great deal of um, experience but I think what you will see is there will be a changing of the guard um, over the next five years so those who have worked very closely with um, Jerry Adams for example people like Ken O'Connell who would be the political director in the south would be removed over time. He, he will be replaced by Mary Lou MacDonald's uh, own staff and I think you'll see the party change its dynamic quite quite quickly. But one thing they've already done is they've already changed 
their party policy with regards to coalition. You know, they they always said they would only enter coalition in the South as the largest party. They changed that position in November. They will now enter, they're now willing to enter coalition as a junior party. Um, They've changed their policies. If you look at uh, their pre-budget submission, they've dropped their infamous wealth tax proposals. They're trying to make themselves... Which is exactly the kind of thing that Vincent's criticising them for. Yeah, now, to be fair, I mean, you can criticise them for it, you can, uh, you can applaud them for it, but the reality is they're actually, they're doing it. It's because, from my perspective, Sinn Féin has one goal, which is to be in power, and it's willing to do anything, change its policies, change its uh, stance on coalition just to get into office. Hasn't there always been an element with Sinn Féin that that's always the case, Vincent? That its primary objective, you know, above all else, which is not true of some of the other smaller left-wing parties in Ireland, it seems to me, its primary objective is to get into power both north and south. Yes, Everything else is second. Same as Fianna Fáil, same as Fianna Fáil, same as the Labour Party. And that's that's my criticism of them. They've become the same as the establishment parties. And and, and that's a difficulty. Um, and it's I mean, if I could just sure. add, it's just, Sinn Féin has marketed themselves, obviously, as being different to the establishment parties. So whilst you can say, yeah, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and Labour Party will alter their party policies to get into power, Sinn Féin has marketed themselves as a party against the establishment. So the mere fact that they're, you know, that they're willing to go down the same road as the so-called establishment parties spells more trouble for them. I think that's Labour Party always marketed itself as anti-establishment too. Um, but can I just well, go back? Lots of people I, I, market themselves as anti-establishment. Yeah. Donald Trump is anti-establishment. I think everybody does. Except the Irish Times. Not all parts of the Irish I'm amused by your reference to a hardline Catholics of whom I'm sure there are none in the Irish Times. But there is a problem uh, on issues such as abortion uh, for Sinn Féin. And it arises from the fact that um, Catholics in Northern Ireland are far more conservative than Catholics in the South. And the reason for that, I suspect, is because um, that's part of their identity and, uh, vis-a-vis the Protestant Northern Ireland. And therefore, they're more more hardline than uh, uh, than Catholics in the South. And that does... that ha- that's That's why... They're far more cautious on the issue of abortion, for instance, and I'm sure they were cautious on the issue of divorce too uh, previously. So there is a difficulty there for them and will persist, especially as given what is now likely to happen if the abortion referendum goes through, that abortion is going to be a major issue in Irish politics for the next um, 50 years, and I'm not looking forward to another 50 years of that. Mm. Mm. I I want to ask you one last question, because... To, to go back to where we started at the start, if Jerry Adams is due credit for um, ending the violence uh, on on this island, and I can take some responsibility and credit for that, does he not also need to take responsibility for the grim sectarian stalemate which exists now in Northern Ireland in terms of the political process there, the kind of the institutional two-sidesism that applies to everything, the kind of the, the sclerotic nature of the Good Friday, you know, inst- institutions. Uh, does he not need to take responsibility for that as well? It's a long way from the, you know, the much vaunted Republican ideal of Catholic, Protestant and dissenter. Well, I, I think it's a bit rough to... Um, to lay that at the door of Adams, though of course the fact that he was involved, he and his organisation were involved in in the murder of so many um, 
uh, unionists over the years, including unionist politicians, that has left a legacy and an understandable and justifiable legacy of antagonism towards um, and has divided and has divided uh, Northern Ireland. But but Northern Ireland was divided anyway. And Northern Ireland was a deeply sectarian society and became more sectarian and more divided during the years from 1922 up to 1969 when the conflict broke out and then got worse, of course, because of the conflict itself. And the undoing of that is not the within the powers of any individual and it will take, I, I don't know, 50, 100 years or maybe longer. But there's, a, there's some argument. Myself and Colin were talking just before we, before we come in here, and there are a number of conflicts around the world at the moment, perhaps because of the way that geopolitics works now. Colin mentioned the Balkans. If you look at somewhere like Bosnia, and there are certain other frozen conflicts that seem because a, you know a treaty or a peace treaty of some sort was imposed, but the, the underlying conflict wasn't resolved, that it seems as if you know certain parts of the world are just stuck in a way that they can't get out of it, and that in a way, the the peace agreement itself sort of institutionalizes, you know, national divisions or sectarian divisions, and that kind of looks like the way it is. Yes, there, there, there is that is a problem with the with the Good Friday Agreement that it it has it has institutionalized the sectarian divide, but what else? What were the what were the alternatives? And the idea that you, if you had what was what's called normal politics, you'd have a prominent Unionist majority in Stormont and in the executive. And th- that was it. So special arrangements had been made. This is a huge difficulty, there's no doubt. My wife was born in Myanmar, in Burma, and we went back there uh, at the beginning of last year. And one thing that I found very striking was that everybody that we talked to about the Rohingya issue, everybody, without exception, everybody was massively up. Uh, hostile to the Rohingyas. And there was sectarianism there that was at least as virulent as the sectarianism in Northern Ireland. And I suspect that's true all over the world and uh, in places where there's been uh, where there's been similar conflicts. And it's part of us as human beings. We'll leave it there. Vincent, thanks very much for coming in. Vincent's documentary, Jerry Adams, War, Peace and Politics, airs on TV3 at 9pm this Wednesday and Thursday. Thanks to Vincent, to Sarah and to Colm for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. And remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider is. And you can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. And your views are always very welcome. And you can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com. Thank you to a few listeners for some very interesting emails this week. And you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.